have ever watched a rerun of a TV show. You've seen it before, but you watch it again. Even though you're saying, oh, I've seen this before. Have you ever read a book more than once? Good, I'm glad. Because uh, two weeks ago, Wade preached on Psalm chapter 1, and so we're going to do a repeat of Psalm chapter 1, and I don't want to hear any griping or complaining. We heard this two weeks ago. You You have watched movies twice. You have seen TV shows twice. You have read books twice, so you can listen to Psalm chapter, a sermon on Psalm chapter 1 twice, and no damage will be done. I am not going to correct Wade. He did a fine job. But I will just, we will look at it from the, uh, the angle that the Lord has given to me. I know, so I've been told also that when we get to Psalm chapter 2, which is next week. So for the next five weeks, we're going to be in the book of Psalm. So next week is Psalm chapter 2. Guess what comes after that? Yeah, so you get the idea. And then after that, we'll be in the book of 1 Corinthians. But I have been told that um, Psalm chapter 2, it, it is a rich, it's one of my favorites. Psalm 1 is also one of my favorites. Um, Psalm 2 is awesome. I have been told that we should clear our lunch calendars for uh, <laughs> and just go, so eat a hearty breakfast. I don't know if we'll go a long time, but it's it's a great psalm. So anyways, but today is Psalm chapter 1, and one of the things that we, we should first uh, attempt to do, and that is to... Uh, give a background of the psalm. What is it all about? What is What are the psalms about? And what is Psalm chapter 1 um, about? And so many Bible students, students of Scripture, have noted that the Psalm chapter 1 um, serves perhaps as a gateway to the entire book of Psalms. Um, that it is an introduction. It is not just Psalm chapter 1, but the editors of the book of Psalms place this at the very beginning because it provides a gateway or an introduction to the rest of the psalm. So it's an introduction to the entire Psalter. It encourages and uh, it causes us to give consideration um, to God's wisdom, to the wisdom of, uh, of the psalm. In fact, this is a psalm of wisdom. Um, if you study the Psalms, you'll note that there are a variety of different genres, like there are Psalms of Thanksgiving, Psalms of Praise, Enthronement Psalms, Psalms of uh, Imprecatory Psalms, which are basically God slay them all type Psalms. Um, then there are Psalms of Wisdom. This would fit into the category of wisdom. This is a Psalm of Wisdom. It is also a very practical Psalm. Um, as we go through this, it's, it's, it basically tells us, gives us instruction, gives us wisdom for how we might live our life, to be satisfied in our life, to have fulfillment in our life. It's also a very simple psalm. There's not a, I mean, anybody who can read can read this psalm and understand it. You do not need to be a scholar to get Psalm chapter one. It's very simple. Very practical. So let me give you a, a little bit of a preview as to where we're going to go today. First of all, it is, as I said, it is a psalm of wisdom. And every era, every generation requires wisdom to navigate the various challenges that present that particular um, generation. I mean, we have... Um, 
we have our own unique challenges that perhaps um, are slightly different from people maybe living a hundred years ago, five hundred years ago, a thousand years ago. And but the eternal word of God is practical for whether you lived five hundred years ago or you live today. And Psalms chapter one will give us wisdom to live in this day and in this age. And specifically, people ask all the time, how do I live my life? How do I live my life in light of everything? I mean, we we read the news, all the stuff that's going on. How do I live in light of all the stuff that's going on? Well, Psalm chapter 1 can help us. I also think that this psalm confronts modern culture because we are a, I guess, modern consumer culture. We glory in nearly infinite choice. We, right, we live, we have a choice of religions. We live in a pluralistic culture, and we have the choice, I mean, we can believe just about anything we want to believe in this, and we do believe just about anything you want to believe. All sorts of weird things are promoted and displayed before our eyes every day. We live in an age of choice. Just go shopping. I mean, have you been down the cereal aisle? Are you kidding me? A whole aisle. Both sides. A breakfast cereal. All kinds of choices. We demand those choices. We have choice of churches. I don't like this church. I'll just go down the road to another one. Or I'll go to this church for one thing and I'll go to that church for another thing. We have choices. Choices in relationships, vocations, religion, today even genders. But this psalm of wisdom boils everything down to two choices. You really don't have a lot of choices. You got two. I know it. And so it confronts us. It confronts this consumer idea that I should be able to be free to choose from a zillion different paths. This psalm tells us, yeah, there's really only two. And one's good and one's not so good. We'll talk about those two paths. So this is a, a very, very uh, important psalm that it acknowledges there are only two ways. So let's look at that. Let's go ahead and read. Follow along with me as I read Psalm chapter 1, and then we will look at it more closely. Listen to the inerrant word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And this ends the reading of God's holy word. The direction I'm going to go today is that we are going to look at two ways, two fruits, and two destinies. So let's look at these two ways. And the first thing we see is that this psalm begins with this word, blessed. Blessed is the man. That's very reminiscent of another sermon, isn't it? 
Right? There's another sermon that starts with blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is very reminiscent of the Sermon on the Mount, or actually maybe the Sermon on the Mount is very reminiscent of Psalm chapter 1. Blessed, oftentimes it is um, used to speak of those who are happy. And sometimes I think happy is too light of a word, but that's really the, the, the general idea is happy or fulfilled or satisfied. And let's face it, everybody wants to be happy. I don't know of anybody who doesn't want to be happy. Everybody wants to be fulfilled. I live my life to be fulfilled. I'm in a dead-end job. I'm not being fulfilled. I'm not being fulfilled or satisfied in my relationship. This psalm is about the, the fulfilled, the satisfied, the happy person. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the person. The way this word blessed is used in the scriptures is interesting. In fact, it's used a lot in the book of Psalms and I would encourage you just to get your concordance out and look up the word blessed and see how it's used, especially in the book of Psalms. But let me give you a couple of ways that it is used um, throughout, uh, especially the Old Testament. Um, The word blessed is used of the recipient of God's favor. The person who receives God's favor is a blessed person. Blessed is the person who is the recipient of God's help. Blessed is the person, uh, is the one that God reproves. Don't you find that interesting? That the happy or the blessed or the fulfilled person is the one that God reproves. We don't generally think of reproof as a time of blessing. The blessed is the person whom God reproves. This reminds us then of uh, the contrast in Romans chapter 1, where God turns people over to their own passions. That is not the blessed person, because God is not reproving them. He has turned them over to their own lusts and their own passions. Blessed is the person whom God reproves. Blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven. Blessed is the one who trusts in God. These are just some of the blesseds in the book of Psalms. Blessed These blessings then center on God's presence, that God is present. So what we might be able to deduce from all of this is that blessedness flows out of God's favorable presence. Blessedness flows out of God being present. In fact, the absence of God would probably be the epitome of unblessedness. And so, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So now our unnamed poet, having begun with this word, blessed is the individual, but now he begins to describe the course or the way of the blessed individual. And I find it interesting because he begins with what the blessed person does not do. He begins with a negative. Actually, three negatives. Three things that the blessed person avoids. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And I suppose we could talk about who the wicked are and what it means by walk, but I really want to give attention to this word counsel. Literally, it's the idea of advice or a plan or a scheme. Blessed is the man who walks not in the plan or the advice or the scheme of the wicked. Make no mistake, the godly have advice for you. The ungodly have advice for you. And they are ready to impart their counsel. 
listen to the news, listen to our representatives, listen to social media, listen to every commercial, and there is counsel and advice that the ungodly are boldly and proudly disseminating to you and to me. The ungodly are ready to impart their counsel. Now, I guess we could talk about the the really, really wicked, the people who are saying, you know, you ought to hate your neighbor. You ought to be cruel to another individual. You ought to embezzle. We could talk about the wicked, the overtly wicked. But many of those things are pretty easy to avoid. I mean, somebody walks up to me and says, you know, listen, I'm going to rob a bank later on today. Would would you like to join me? That's pretty easy to say, you know, I'm not going to walk in the council of the wicked. Say, well, we got a lot, we could make a lot of money and I'll split it with you 60-40 and all of this stuff, you know. It's... That would not move me. But there are many voices that appear very, very <clears throat> close to godliness. People perhaps even within our churches, within our denominations, within the broader Christian realm who are imparting ungodly counsel. They are accepted perhaps by the Christian community. They are accepted by the believing community. But they are people who leave God out of their lives. They are people who exalt self and diminish the role of God. They exalt themselves and self-pleasing and they have rejected the wisdom of God Almighty. There are people who write books that we find in our Christian bookstores or that we see on so-called... People have considered them believers and we see them on YouTube channels imparting their counsel, telling us how to raise family, how to, to use our finances, how, what morality looks like, what kind of relationships we should be involved with. I think perhaps, I'll just speak to the ladies for just a moment, not just because this is the only place, but because it's so prominent in the women's ministries, sorry, most of the stuff I see in women's ministry is horrific. The books that are coming out for women's ministry, many of them, not all of them, many, at least the popular ones, many of the popular ones are just self. That you can be all that you want to be. How about, how about you cannot be all that you want to be and Christ will be your sufficiency. It is self-exaltation. But that's just not, I, it's in all sorts of different ministries, men's ministries as well. It's just walk into a Christian bookstore. Probably one of the most empty places you can find is a Christian bookstore. I'm sorry if you own a Christian bookstore, um, but I see all sorts of just wickedness, non-gospel, non-godly 
self-exalting books. If you look at the number one Christian bestseller, more likely than not, it is just a promotion of self. Like I said, not all. But the person walked not in the counsel of the ungodly. We've been talking very quite a bit, the big, the, the big issue today, whether it be in school or in churches or what have you, is certainly critical race theory and intersectionality. This is the wisdom of the world. And there are Christians, men and women, famous preachers, famous preachers, people whom I've loved for years, who promote this godless counsel. And it is godless Utterly and completely at its core, it is a godless worldview, has no place whatsoever within the church. And yet men and women whom we've loved and respected are spouting this nonsense. It's vile. Walk not in the counsel, the plan, the advice, the scheme of the wicked. These things exalt man and rob God of his glory. Here's the other thing that this first negative admonition demands, and that says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, which seems to suggest that we should be able to discern the counsel of the ungodly. If you can't discern the counsel of the ungodly, then... This is kind of a futile verse. So I guess one of our questions then is, how would we be able to discern what is the counsel of the godly and what is the counsel of the ungodly? I'm going to get to that in a little bit. In fact, I think the author here gives us that. But that certainly becomes a a uh, uh, of an important point, that the blessed will be able to discern the right path. As I said, I'll come back to that in just a bit. How do the how will the blessed individual discern what is ungodly counsel and what is godly counsel? But then we go to a second negative. Not only does is the man who the person who is blessed not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but neither does this individual stand in the path of sinners. Now, this one here was a bit of a challenge to me. As I thought through this, first of all, I thought, well, wait a second, we're all sinners. So, it's probably not saying don't stand in the path of every single person you come into contact with. It also can't mean complete disassociation with unbelievers. After all, what are we supposed to do? Leave our jobs? leave every many of our relationships? What does it mean to not walk in the council or stand in the path of sinners? In fact, Paul, I think, speaks to this um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Paul writes this. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother 
if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from your midst. So basically, we're always surrounded by by unbelievers. In fact, many people will tell you, well, wait a second, didn't Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? So, so the idea here is, is not simply that we kind of disassociate ourselves and become desert monks and live out all by ourselves with no interaction with anybody, but the idea here is that we will not join in their life direction. That while we may have family members and friends and bosses and, and co-workers who are um, outside of uh, redemption, they are not in Christ, we do not join in their life direction. And then we are not to sit in the seat of the scornful. The idea is to mock the things of God. The mockers hold God in contempt and disdain. They may hide behind an intellectual facade, but they deny God to pursue their own passions. James Johnson writes, mockers are missionaries of wickedness. And so we do not sit in the seat of the scornful. We do not stand in the path of sinners. And the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And so we have these three negatives. The blessed individual avoids such things. They avoid the counsel of the wicked. They avoid the life direction of sinners. And they avoid the mockers of wickedness, the mockers of God who are missionaries of wickedness. So here we see the very first thing that the author begins with is he writes, this is the way you should not go. This is not the way. This is not the path you should go down. There are not many great paths. There is one path. That one's not it. Mocking, scoffing, ungodly counsel is not the right path. Sometimes Christians are more known for what they're against than what they are for. And so now our author goes and starts talking about, well, if those are the ways you shouldn't go, what way should I go? And now he describes the, the way. So blessed is the man who doesn't do these things, but, and there's our hinge, but, now there's a, sheer, a shift. There, the, 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 um, the author is preparing the reader for a positive direction, but do this. Don't do that. Now do this. What does he do? He delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is a great word, delight. It's often used of um, a man who falls in love with a woman. That would be a good He delights in her. We see this in Scripture. And so and so found delight. He delighted, she delighted his eyes. She found delight in him. It speaks of pleasure. It speaks of joy. And so the blessed individual finds joy, finds delight in the law of God. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, 
book on, on the Psalms found real cha- a real challenge with this. And I understand his challenge. He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He thought, man, that's really mysterious. Because one might find delight in God's mercies. One might find delight in God's attributes. We might find delight in the love of God, but in the law of God? I mean, we might respect the law of God. We might honor the law of God, but we don't delight. How do we delight in the law of God? And I can share a little bit of that um, that challenge, that, that mysteriousness. But when we consider what delight is, and it is something that is that we find joy in, what do we do? If, when a man finds delight in a woman, what does he do? Well, he rearranges a schedule. He has new priorities, doesn't he? All of a sudden, what he used to do going out with his buds isn't so important. His calendar changes. When we delight in the law of God, our schedule just might be rearranged because we find joy in what God has given us. Now, this idea of law probably could be understood in, in a number of different ways. It could be understood very specifically as the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, um, which is often known as the law. It also could um, be used to refer to God's revelation in general. I would take it to mean the latter, God's entire revelation. So when we... The blessed man finds delight in all that God has made known. But let me also make note here and, and make mention a little bit about the law of God. Because I love the law of God. I don't think, I think, and I come from a, a, an evangelical tradition that um, really minimize the law of God as though it's not really all that important. And what was the verse that you'd always hear? Well, we're not under law, we're under grace. Read the text. Read the text. That's a nice statement. But the text has to do with, we are not under law, but under grace. It has to do with how one enters in to salvation. And that's true. We don't enter into salvation through law, but through grace. But we are still under law. Law is great. In fact, what did Jesus said? If you love me, you will do what? You will keep what? Sounds like law to me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How about this one? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and do what? Sounds like law to me. See, then Paul also goes on and says that the law is holy and it's just and it's good. We don't dismiss the law because we entered into salvation by grace. No, we keep the law. The law actually is really important for us. What does the law do? The law, first of all, it informs us of God's holy and high standards. This is who God is. 
Here's another command. Be holy because I am holy. The command, the law. Be holy. This is God's high standard. But here's another great purpose for the law. We were talking about this last Wednesday night. Just briefly. The other thing the law is great for, not only does it show God's standard, it also shows that we can't meet it and it drives us to Christ. Be holy for I am holy. I can't. I can't. More than I can't, I don't always want to. Have mercy on me, a sinner. It drives us to grace. It drives us to Christ who kept the law. One of the, one of the songs we're going to sing here at the very end is Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. What a great song. It talks about um, this kind of vaguely, but it does talk about this idea of double imputation. That is, that our sins were imputed or credited to Christ and His righteousness is imputed or credited to us. I can't keep the law. Christ has. I'm in Christ. I have, I am a law keeper because Christ has done it. Not because I have done anything. I have failed, but Christ has kept it. Oh, the law is holy and just and good. It tells us God's standard. It drives us to Christ who has done what we could not do. His delight is in the law of the Lord. God's overall revelation, His entire revelation. I take delight in it. I find joy in it. In fact, it goes on and says that this individual, that the blessed individual meditates on the law day and night. In other words, he doesn't just take delight or take joy in God's revelation, but he does something about it. Just as the man who delights in a woman He does something. He changes the schedule. He rearranges things. The idea here is he meditates. Literally, he ponders or he mutters. I like that idea. He mutters. Jeremiah 15, 16 helps us. Actually, a couple of verses that could help us here, but it is the idea of muttering, speaking, murmuring, murmuring God's word, talking, speaking God's word. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Your words were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord of hosts. Mutter that. Murmur that. guess we could ask the question then upon what are you muttering? What are you repeating over and over and over again? Is it God's beautiful and uncompromised word or are you muttering about the injustice that was inflicted upon you maybe when you were a child, maybe yesterday? Are you muttering about the, the person who wronged you? Are you muttering about how unfair or how unjust or how offended you should be? Or are you muttering and repeating the great works of God? The blessed person remembers and mutters God's great works.
And so this then becomes an antidote to counter the counsel of the wicked. I said I'd come back to it. How do we know what the counsel of the wicked is? Because we meditate upon the law of God day and night. That's in our minds, it's in our hearts. What do we think about? What we think about is often what is in our heart. So we've looked at there are two ways, but there are also two fruits. We see this beginning in verse 3 and going through verse 4. There are two fruits. And I want to mention that these are fruits. They are not rewards. As though, well, if I meditate on God's word long enough, then God will somehow give me some sort of, I don't know, prize. Or maybe he'll love me. Um, Maybe then he will be pleased with me. The fruits are just that. They are fruits. They are not rewards. They develop. They grow as we uh, are the blessed individual who is not walking in the counsel of the wicked or standing in the path of sinners or sitting in the seat of the scoffers but delighting and meditating on his word day and night. What we begin to notice is that something begins has changed. We are different. We bear fruit. And the person then is described as a tree. What a, what a great picture a tree that flourishes, and it's a flourishing tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. I'm not going to go into great detail on all of those descriptors, but I do want to point out one or two. First of all, um, this is a tree that is planted. I love that. It's a passive verb. In other words, you don't plant yourself. God has planted you. God is the planter. Blessed is the person. He's he's like a tree that God has planted by streams of water. God has established you. God has made you. God has created you. God has put you where he has for you to be. And you flourish. Planted by streams of water. Yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. I love this idea of a flourishing tree. Let me um, point you over to Jeremiah again. In fact, I think we have the verse up on the screen. I think if we go to the next slide, let's see if we can get it up there. There it is. This is such an important verse. I would probably say that this verse is the verse that pretty much really is foundational to this church. This was probably the very first thing that we really began to focus on. In fact, we used to have a little plaque in one of the restrooms that had this verse on there. Somebody donated and said, well, this fits what you guys do. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. What is he like? He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its root. It's roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. Blessed is the man, note that, blessed is the man who does what? Who trusts in the Lord. What's he like? He's like a tree planted by the water. But here's the thing that I find so amazing is this is a tree that flourishes in drought. It is a tree that flourishes when the heat comes. It is a tree that does not cease to bear fruit in adverse conditions. This really forms such a a foundational issue to who we are as a church to 
grow people to make disciples. Disciples that even when the heat comes, even when there is a drought, even when everything is running against you, we flourish. We bear fruit. I'm not saying that we just paint on a happy face when we are in crisis. When a loved one dies, do we just paint on a happy face and say, oh, I'm flourishing? No, we grieve. And we weep and we mourn. We may even cry out to God, where are you? But ultimately, ultimately, we stand firm in the fact that we can trust a holy God. We flourish and people wonder, how in the world did you make it through such a drought, such a crisis? Because I've been planted in deep waters, deep waters. The ground around me is dry and the heat is bearing down, but my roots grow deep. I will not be shaken, not by crisis, not by the doctor's diagnosis, not by the fact that a loved one has perished, none of that. I flourish. I grow. I'm not just painting on a happy face. When I get the diagnosis that is unfavorable, I'm concerned. But I stand firm. I will not be shaken. Even in drought. This is where the Lord has established me. This is where the Lord has planted me. I will bear fruit. Even in crisis. What a great thing. We see people all the time. People say, man, they were going through such and such. And look at how they remain faithful even in difficult times. I can remain faithful in my difficult times. You bore fruit because you have now encouraged and blessed another individual who is also facing a challenge. This is a great verse. The blessed individual, what what does he do? He's like a tree. He does not wither, even in drought. And then it says, he prospers. I suppose it could have something to do, especially in the Old Testament, to have something to do with uh, some sort of financial blessing. But the idea really means, I think the idea here is to bring to an intended goal or purpose. To prosper is to accomplish the task. I think one of the great places we see this is in Second Timothy chapter four seven, as Paul is writing perhaps his last letter, he realizes that his life is near its end, and he tells Timothy this I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. There is a man who has prospered. There is a man who has reached his intended goal. I fought the fight. I am victorious. I have run the race. I, I may have stumbled, but I got up. And I have kept the faith. There now is, remains for me a great reward. This is a man who prospered. Sitting in a Roman prison saying, I'm good. I would pray that all of us on our deathbed would be able to say this. I fought the fight. Somebody said, how are you doing? I fought the fight. 
I've run the race. I've kept the faith. The blessed man is like a tree, does not waver. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff. Chaff is just that light shell around the the kernel of grain. They would get up on a hill and they would have their granary up on a hill and they would toss the grain in the air and the wind would come by and it would blow the chaff away and the grain would fall. The chaff is ungrounded. It is useless and it is easily moved. The blessed individual is not like chaff. They are like a tree with deep roots. Grounded, useful, firm. The wicked are not so. So we've seen two ways, we've seen two fruits, and then we see two destinies. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Proverbs 14.12 tells us this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. They will be cut off. Perhaps there is a bit of a reference to Daniel chapter 5, verse 27, where the king was weighed and found wanting. You are the king of an empire, the most powerful man in the in the Middle Eastern world, wealth and pleasure, all of those are yours and you've been weighed in the balances and you have found, been found lacking. You are chaff. They will not stand in the judgment. Their way perishes. I like how this it puts this. The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Notice the last, part, the last line. But the way of the wicked... The way of the wicked will perish. Not just the wicked will perish, their way will perish. Their path, even their path of life will be eliminated. That path will not be an option in the consummation. When Christ comes and restores all things, that's not even an option anymore. That path, the path of wickedness is utterly and completely consumed. Two destinies. There is the wicked, and it's the wicked will perish, and their way will perish. But the righteous, I like this, how he says, for the, and it baffled me for a bit. For the, way, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Again, he doesn't just know the righteous. I mean, he does know the righteous, but he knows the way. He knows the path of the righteous. And to think about that a little bit. He knows the way of the righteous because it's his path. It's his way. He's the one who created it. He walked it. Hebrews says that Jesus is the pioneer. He is the author or the pioneer, the one who goes before us. He's already gone that way. He knows the way. Why? Because he created the way. Jesus is the way. No one comes to the Father but through him. The righteous, um, the Lord knows the path of the righteous. Why? Because it's his path. He created it. He made it. He will take you on it. You will never be lost on the path of God. 
because he's the one who created it and it leads to him. Ultimately, this psalm does not provide many options, does it? There are two ways that are highlighted. There are two fruits and there are two destinies, just two. But only one of them leads to life. That's it. I guess you can have your choice if you want. But only one leads to life. As I bring this message to a close, I want to read just briefly a a story that was told by Harry Ironside, a a Bible teacher. He told of a visit to Palestine years ago by a man by the name of Joseph Flax. Joseph Flax had the opportunity to address a gathering of Jews and Arabs and took for the subject of his address the first psalm. He read it and then he asked the question, Who is this blessed man of whom the psalmist speaks? This man who has never walked in the counsel of the wicked or stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of scoffers, this absolutely sinless man of whom does it speak and nobody spoke. So Flax asked, was he our great father Abraham? An old man stood and said, no, it cannot be Abraham. He denied his wife and told a lie about her. Well then, how about our great lawgiver Moses? No, someone said, it can't be Moses. He killed a man and lost his temper by the waters of Meribah. Flax suggested, how about David? Can't be David. And there was silence for a while. Then an elderly Jew arose and he said, my brothers, I have a little book here. It is called the New Testament and I have been reading it. And if I could believe this book, if I could be sure that it was true, I would say the man of the first psalm is Jesus of Nazareth. The only one who has never sat in the seat of scoffers or walked in the counsel of the wicked or stood in the way of sinners. That absolutely perfect man who stood and flourished even in drought. It is he who stands at the portal of this book to show us the way that we live, the way that we should live and to help us do it. There really has been only one truly blessed man. But let me offer this. If you are in Christ, then you share in his blessedness. If you are in Christ, all that he has is yours. Not because you have never walked in the counsel of the wicked or stood in the seat of of sinners or mocked or any of those things, but because you are in Christ. Christ is the blessed man and all of his blessings and all of his blessedness flows to those who are his. If you are in Christ, then you share in his blessedness. Father, we give you praise. We give you thanks this day. For you have loved us and you have kept us and you have made us your own. I pray that you would open our ears and open our eyes to see your truth and beauty. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.
Amen. There, please, and then we will have our benediction. If you can get that first verse up there, I just, since I brought it up earlier and I'd forgot the, uh, um, first, verse of the song. first verse of the song. Well, it says, here we go. Thank you. (laughs) Be of sin the double cure. There it is, double imputation. Save from wrath and make me pure. What a powerful, powerful truth that is. I said that we sing our faith, and that is something that we should sing often. So now it is our benediction. Sorry for the delay, but um, let's... As we bless one another as we go, may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Amen. You're dismissed.